Much Ado About the AQ, Episode 4, more like Earl of Moxford. Hello, welcome back to Much Ado About the AQ. It's been a little while, uh, heralded by computer issues and assorted other phases. Essentially, we'd recorded this episode already once, and then it was all lost to the mists of time and the corruption of data uh, when my old hard drive died. So we're having another go, and we're back. Um, it is I, the expert to a layman, layman to an expert, uh, Joe Payne. I am an English teacher here in Kent, and um, I uh, will be talking about the AQ from a semi-educated perspective, and I'm joined, as ever, uh, by my esteemed co-host. Me? Yeah, that's Sorry, you. I missed the, uh, the nod. <laughs> Christian Taylor, uh, also uh, an English teacher in Kent, and, and heavily invested in the AQ, but also just a layman, really. Uh, Dr. Christian Taylor. Yes. Let's, let's, let's put that in there. The man's earned the, th- earned the title. Um, so before we start today, um, almost a plea. Um, we've, we've, obviously, we are online people. We live in an online world, and... We're surrounded by um, these people who claim that um, the man from Stratford definitely wrote the plays, these vast number of Stratfordians. And uh, we, the, the sceptics, um, whether we be um, Oxfordians, whether we be Marlovians, whether we be Baconians or any of the other uh, groups of people, um, we are the minority. And the last thing we need is to be arguing amongst one another and... Um, there has been so much abuse coming both of our way online recently, um, some of which extremely offensive, um, attacking our personality, attacking the way we look. Um, it's just not right. Just We're all in this together, and if a particularly convincing argument for one side or the other does come out, then I think we'll almost all fall into line. But as things stand, we all have the common opponent of the Stratfordians who are already looking down on us. Let's not look down on one another. And just a little tip, and um, this is a personal one, if you're, if you're going to come at someone and start um, swearing at them, maybe make it so that the first Google result when I search your name isn't a thread of academics all saying how you've sent them abusive emails, um, often misogynistic, and I'm sure the person I'm talking about knows who it is. I'm not going to give him the oxygen of publicity. Right. I think you've had a couple of issues in the last couple of weeks, Dr. Stone, is that right? <clears throat> Uh, yes. I mean, bear, bear in mind that the last couple of weeks actually means about a month and a half ago yeah. because of what happened to your hard drive, Matron. But um, yeah, I, I, I blocked a number of people online as well. You know, essentially Stratfordians um, who got very scurrilous and dirty and I think unnecessarily personal about you and me, about what we're up to. Um, but, you know, there is that kind of analogy that um, World War II fighter pilots or bomber pilots used to use, which is... Uh, you know, the flak is heaviest when you're over the target. So mm. it's a weird backhanded compliment. But literally in the last week, I've had an interaction with Henry Risley, third Earl of Southampton, which was interesting because I was given to believe that he died. Mm. But apparently he's, he's running a Twitter He's feed. got better, hasn't he? he he's, he's all right. And he's on Twitter. Um, anyway, I just want to say to the good Earl, you know, in, in the spirit of what Joe just said, um, you know, good day to you. And it was nice interacting with you, but it's a shame that you uh, stopped following me when I suggested that Edward Devere was your dad. <laughs> but you made me go there. 
Yeah. <laughs> It, it was um, it was the obvious play, I think, at that point. Absolutely, yes. Because essentially the background to that is that the, the pitch that the good Earl had made is that Oxfordians, whoever they are, by the way, I don't identify as one. I'm a sceptic leaning towards Oxfordianism, but whatever that is, you know, I don't know. But he basically said, we're not very good at producing evidence, just hearsay. So I threw some biographical evidence <laughs> his way. And, uh, and, and it did not meet with the Goodell's approval. Did he get very upset about this? Well, moderately upset. It was more mocking than anything. But anyway, look, Risley, look, dude, come back. Follow me again. Big hugs. I'm sorry. Yeah, we, we don't... Um, we will never close the door on anyone. We just want people to... Uh, we want to have these discussions. We want to have these discussions in a sensible and reasonable way without childish name-calling and things. So um, please just uh, engage with us sensibly and we'll engage back. Mm. Um, okay, a uh, couple of uh, bits of housekeeping almost. Uh, we uh, are going to be hopefully lo- um, running a little bit of an audio drama. It's uh, probably not a Christmas special now. It was originally planned <laughs> to be a Christmas special, but then uh, issues got in the way. But we, um, Dot Sailor has written uh, a drama called Strat Fraud. Um, it's it's a bit of fun. It's a it's a a light comedy. Yeah, I mean it's it's not a spoof per se, but it's got kind of spoofy elements. But it is a comedy. It's very silly. Yeah, and uh, everything uh, I write is. Yeah. And we're we're looking to to cast that from <clears throat> our glorious legion of fans, mm. um, all seven of you. We know who. Um, you yeah, because that's how many cast <laughs> members we need. Um, so if you are interested, please do give us a shout. If it would be online. Um, it would be. It would take no more than an hour or so to record. We think, and it would just be a read through of the script. Yep. Um, and it would go up on um, on all of our platforms just to uh, just to share the play um, Stratford. So if you're interested, uh, send us a tweet. Um, I am at God of Chicken on Twitter. Or. The, the platform formerly known as Twitter. Yeah, like I, I refuse to call it X. I'm not, I'm yeah, not X, bowing down. X is a bit weird, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I'm AQ Anon on Twitter. I can't remember what my handle is, but I think I'm the only AQ Anon on there. Yeah. Um, and I'm also Kit Marley uh, on Amazon Books. So if you were interested in reading my material, go to Amazon Books, type in Kit Marley. Um, but obviously for the purpose of strap fraud and the recording and whatnot, if you email me, I will send you a PDF Immediately. Yep, much ado about the AQ at gmail.com is our email address. That's just much ado about the AQ at gmail.com. No spaces in there. And um, we'll get back to you. Um, so, fantastic. Um, in terms of what we've been reading since we've been away, I mean, I've been reading a lot, but I don't want to waste any more time before we get in, back into Devere. Um, I read a uh, fantastic essay uh, by the um, amazingly uh, well read. Uh, Roger Stripmatter, uh, small Latin and less Greek anatomy of a misquotation this week, which I um, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Would recommend um, for anyone who's looking into it. I mean, it's um, it really goes into that that very short quotation about um, Shakespeare. Um, really worth a read. It's available uh, on academia.edu. Yeah, um, I read a good deal um, um, over the holiday which seems a long way off now. Um, but this week I've been rereading bits from the Shakespeare Authorship Sourcebook, uh, which is edited by uh, Professor Roger Stripmatter, who wrote his PhD on De Vere's Bible, as I understand it. Um, and this is, as it, as it calls itself, an authorship sourcebook, uh, which is basically for, um, as it puts it here, 
resources and strategies for leading classroom controversy, ninth grade through post-secondary. Um, it's a really good, hefty-looking tome, and it's uh, produced by the Shakespeare Oxford Fellowship and uh, available at all good uh, online conspiracy sites, no doubt. Yeah, for, for all of our fellow English teachers out there who want to join in with us, obviously corrupting the youth of tomorrow, yes. as we've been accused of. Yeah, Socrates um, fashion. You, you can pick it up uh, online. Um, so we're going to head back into Edward de Vere. Um, obviously, um, it's, it's easy to see him as the popular choice for the author of Shakespeare's work at the moment because... Um, he is the one about whom the most writing is being done, I would say, at the moment. Uh, the most evidence is being found and, and the most convincing evidence uh, for my money, although I'm still not sure I'd call myself an Oxfordian just yet. <clears throat> but um, we do have this vast list of evidence that we are working through, and mm -hmm. uh, I'll pass back over to continue. <laughs> um, I, I believe that we got up to uh, point number five on my list of blessed memory um, on, on the other podcast. Now, bearing in mind there are 31 points to make, which are kind of a, you know, a blend of argument and, and, and dispute and you know, just provocative detail. But I'll, I'll go from point six. Um, most of these books come from, uh, sorry, most of these quotations come from a book, which of course um, I failed to note here, although I may have mentioned it last time we did this. Who knows? But yeah, the thing about De Vere is, um, with him, it's the biographical details that map most mm. Uh, appositely to the Shakespearean canon. With Marlowe, it's uh, textual parallelisms. And obviously with Marlowe, um, you know, this was first kind of uh, um, analysed at, at length by Calvin Hoffman in his book, The Murder of the Man Who Was Shakespeare. This is Calvin Hoffman, who then went on to found a prize that bears his name, which is still awarded annually by the King's School in Canterbury. Um, I, I submitted for that prize a couple of years ago. <laughs> I didn't get a memo back. Uh, I'm, I, I still have a theory that both... Uh, De Vere and Marlowe were involved in some way, and we'll certainly come on to that in a later episode. But but just a leap on that, yeah, actually, it's it, there's, there's been quite a lot of uh, Shakespeare chat on Twitter, or whatever we're calling it, because it's 400 years. It was 400 years this week since the publication of the first folio yep. in 1623. And a lot of my good Baconian colleagues have been kind of posting about how it is, you know, the, 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 the introductory uh, material and, and even the... Um, the methodology of the composition, the ordering of the text in the first folio, it all points to Bacon, they sayeth. Um, and then obviously other people have kind of uh, joined in that, that debate, good-naturedly. But, yeah, on this theory that why we offered a binary choice all the time, let us not forget, uh, as the great Alexander War has pointed out several times uh, online and elsewhere, um, Edward de Vere had a, um, a writer's um, scriptorium in London uh, at his house, Fisher's Folly, and we are given to believe that he had lots of people uh, writing for him. So we could see him as the, the head of the project with Marlowe, um, Bacon, and I know that Baconians won't like that theory, but hey-ho, and the Earl of Derby and people like that intimately involved. Um, I thought I'd better look up the Earl of Derby this week, and one of the first things I found out when I did, uh, via a newsletter produced by the inestimably amazing De Vere Society. Fantastic resource, yeah. We love them. I'm now a member. Everyone should join. Pay your subs. Um, the first thing I learned about the Earl of Derby is that he was Edward De Vere's son-in-law. So whenever I go looking for uh, evidence on the AQ or an alternative theory or whenever I look at an alternative candidate, um, always on the radar and always very, very close by to the person I'm looking at is Edward De Vere. Um, 
Okay, so I'll try and make some uh, coherent points about why Oxford might be considered a good candidate for the real Shakespeare. Um, and I begin with this um, comment by a Stratfordian biographer, George Russell French, back in 1869. And he was the first person, a Stratfordian by the way, who identified uh, Polonius in the play, who's like the, uh, uh, the, the, the busybody at court, uh, you know, the chap who says to thine own self be true and whatnot, uh, Laertes and Ophelia's dad. Um, Russell uh, French has identified him with William Cecil Lord Burley, who was, of course, Edward de Vere's father-in-law, um, had been his guardian when he was a ward of court. Um, and then French, it says here, then made the logical next step of linking brother and sister Anne and Thomas Cecil with Ophelia and Laertes. So an orthodox view of the play is that um, William Cecil Lord Burley is satirised as Polonius. That would make Ophelia... Uh, Anne Cecil and Laertes, Thomas Cecil. And, yep. and there's plenty of evidence to kind of flesh that out. Yeah, it all exists. Um, and, and, of course, this is a nice, easy link to Edward de Vere. And one of the biggest counter-arguments I get quite a lot um, on this one is all of the evidence linking de Vere and, and Shakespeare is circumstantial. All of the evidence is circumstantial. Mm-hmm. To which my response is, is it any more or less circumstantial than the evidence that links Shakespeare of Stratford. Same name. Circumstantial. Yeah, same name, circumstantial. New actors. W- worked in a theatre. Circumstantial. Yeah. New actors, circumstantial. Yeah. That's Hennings it. and Condell in the will. Cool story, bro. Circumstantial. Yeah. I, I know loads of people. <coughs> Does, Me too. Doesn't mean I'm the world's greatest anything. No. Well, there you go. I mean, yeah, I mean, also, circumstantial evidence is admissible in a court of law. Mm-hmm. It just is. Um, but, yeah, um, just, just on the ancestral... Uh, idea, you know, reading her as Ophelia. Ophelia and Hamlet's relationship is broken, it's, it's, it's um, very, very emotionally tumultuous and so on. Well, the relationship between Anne Cecil and Edward de Vere was as well. Um, he was estranged from his wife for several years because he believed that he'd been, uh, as the Elizabethans would have said, cuckolded uh, by her. Um, apparently he was in Italy um, for an extended period, or was on the continent, and when he came back she was either pregnant or had had a child, and he believed that uh, that child was not his. It took William Cecil and many other members of the family, the clan, to um, facilitate a reconciliation. And to me, that maps beautifully to this kind of very strained um, relationship between Hamlet and Ophelia in the play. Um, more on that, you know, another time probably. There's an interesting large number of references in Hamlet to Ophelia mm. being accused of giving out her virtue freely mm-hmm. and, and this kind of thing and, mm-hmm. uh, and being too much in the sun. Mm-hmm. And um, there's, there's a remarkable number of references to that given that Ophelia essentially is a virgin and a, a, a good maiden. She is a good mm-hmm. girl. She is the most bland character. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet she, uh, Hamlet attached all these things to her in a play that is often described by Stratfordians as probably the most autobiographical. Well, the thing about that, absolutely good point. Um, when Stratfordians or the Orthodox community, however they identify, um, <laughs> when they say Hamlet's an autobiographical play, and when they say the sonnet, 1609, the sugared sonnets, they're autobiographical, that, that to me is kryptonite for their argument. That, that's a really bad thing to say, because the person who emerges from the sonnets is like a lame aristocrat who knows how to go hawking, you know, and he understands how court protocol works and such like. He also seems to have uh, written the first 17 <coughs> sonnets urging the Earl of Southampton to procreate um, if he is indeed the, the young boy in the sonnets, as Stratfordians believe he is, 
who was the uh, Earl of Southampton. Oh, well, he was going to marry one of the De Vere girls. I mean, you know, it's not a good argument to make. And on the Hamlet front, well, as I can elaborate here, drawing on the great, the late great Thomas Loney, or Looney, if you want to go there, um, that there are so many links between Hamlet and, and um, De Vere, but none that I can see pointing back to the Midlands malt merchant. Um, right, now, here's point, we're at point number seven here. We've only done one so far. Powering through. <laughs> Good God. I mean, I haven't done my 3,000 shout-outs, but we will. Um, okay, on the 29th of May, 1561, Sir William Cecil's eldest son, Thomas Laertes, set out for Paris, carrying with him a travel document from his father. This took the form of a stern Puritan sermon, listing the prayers Thomas should say night and morning and the confessions he should make if led astray in Paris by the pleasures of the flesh. These sententious precepts included advice on how to dress and conduct himself. Uh, now, I'm quoting a book. It's, I think it's George Eyre, the book, and I think it's called The Case for Edward de Vere. I think Eyre is E-Y-R-E. That's from memory. So that was page 60. Um, Mr. Payne's just Googling to see if there is such a book or if I just invented it. <laughs> um, um, but, no, it's not. It, it is a real book. Um, yeah. And it's, yeah, Geoffrey Eyre, E-Y-R-E. There you go. So that's, that's whom I am quoting. Um, so... Thomas goes to Paris, and William Cecil uh, writes him a book of precepts and sermons. Well, let's go to Polonius, uh, Act 1, Scene 3, line 55 to 81 of Hamlet. Who saith, Costly thy habit as thy purse can buy, but not expressed in fancy, rich, not gaudy, for the apparel oft proclaims the man. And off he goes. Now let's compare that to William Cecil talking to his son Thomas. A memorial for Thomas Cecil, my son, to peruse. After morning prayer, you shall make you ready in your apparel of cleanly sort, doing that for civility and health and not for pride. And that's in uh, Geoffrey Ayer's book on page 61. <clears throat> um, so there's, there's a lovely kind of circumstantial, you know, kind of bit of evidence there. Sure, you could say, well, lots of people would have had their father writing similar advice to them at the time. And I'd say, well, okay, that's a great argument. Could you point to where John Shakespeare does that to Billy Boy? I'm going to say it's unlikely, given that we don't think they could write. And we also know that Shakespeare didn't leave the country. Yeah. Now, you could say he was smuggled out to Italy and you know, did a fact-finding mission to Verona and then came back and wrote Romeo and Juliet. But if that's what you believe, I want to know what you're smoking. Yeah, that's, that's a, lot of, um, a, a lot of supposition there, <laughs> yep. given we know De Vere definitely went to Italy. He was known as the Italian Lord. Um, now, I did have an altercation uh, online, believe it or not, uh, <laughs> with, with a person whom I will not name either, because uh, he's not getting any publicity here. Um, but he basically said, well, yeah, your, your man De Vere went to Italy and he hated it. He was just slagging the place off all the time he was there. That, that, that does not invalidate my argument that he knew Italy. Uh, you know, De Vere knew, for example, um, if we think he wrote Romeo and Juliet, for example, that um, sycamores grow on the west side of the city walls. Lots of people were sniffy about that until they went out to uh, Verona, where to this day sycamores grow on the west side of the city wall. He knew about various churches that are referenced in the text that were thought to be, you know, confabulations and made-up nonsense by Shakespeare. Um, I can't remember what my original point well, was. Wells now. as well, isn't it? There's a very specific reference to a well. I think, uh, yes, there is. I can't remember now. Also, didn't he say in Romeo and Juliet that the, the, the streets were lined with flint? Yes. Or something like that, or the walls, uh, as they are hereabouts in Kent. And, yeah, it turns out that that's true as well. Now, I know what the Stratfordian repost is every time. It's... Um, you know, well, Shakespeare would have met somebody at the Mermaid Inn 
and he would have been a, a Veronese or a guy from Padua and he would have talked to him about these things. I don't know about you, Joe, but when I get wasted at the pub, I don't talk about walls and flint a great deal. No, no you, you should see my hometown. Yeah, they've got <laughs> oaks growing specifically on the north side of the Western Link. Road. That's amazing. Hang on, I'm writing a play and I needed some colourful detail. I'll just put that in there. Yeah. I mean, why would you put it in the bloody play? I mean, I'm, I'm often around the well on Tanner Street. <laughs> yes, we have a road in my town that's called No Name Street, you know. Well, it's going in the play. Yeah, yeah yoink. I mean, it is fantastic to think like a Stratfordian a little bit every now and again, just for a bit of a giggle. Um, okay, right, point eight. Are you ready? Yeah, go for it. Per pend, as Polonius would say. Um, Right, in um, Act 2, Scene 1 of Hamlet, um, Polonius talks to Reynaldo, who's this kind of court lackey, this, this kind of like CD servant figure. And he, um, he says to him, essentially, that he's got to go. This is Reynaldo being uh, commissioned and sent off by Polonius. He's got to go and spy on Laertes in Paris. Now, this is absolutely inconsequential to the plotline of Hamlet. Mm. I mean, apart from showing Polonius to be like a Senex figure from the Commedia dell'arte, you know, that's an yeah, old buffoon. Polonius is the spy master, of course, so and it yeah. serves a vaguely character-building purpose for a character who will die a few scenes later. Yeah, spying on somebody else, yeah. yeah. So he dispatches Ronaldo with the instructions that he's got to look out for Laertes drinking, fencing, swearing, quarrelling, drabbing, and all the rest of it. Well, why is that interesting? Well, it's interesting because um, we know... Shuffling papers here. Um, that William Cecil did exactly the same thing with his son Thomas. Uh, quoting Air, page 61, suspecting that his 19 year old son might be seduced by the temptations available to him in Paris, Cecil arranged for his secretary, Thomas Winderbank, Reynaldo figure, to spy on him and report back. Now, again, we, we, we can dismiss each one of these points in turn as being circumstantial and merely coincidental, we could do that on our side of the aisle without mm. being orthodox. Um, but as Joe and I have talked about before, it's the accumulation of these highly um, favourable coincidental uh, fragments and, and whatnot that seems to be ultimately compelling. Yeah, uh, when, when you have enough circumstantial evidence, it builds a very convincing case in comparison to he's got the same name. Mm. Well, yeah, and also this kind of the, the, who is the, sh- the spear shaker? Because this is the thing about the name. The spear shaker was, uh, I think it was, I keep saying Pallas Athena, but I think it's actually Minerva. I've covered both bases, but it's one of our goddess figures from antiquity. Um, and, and, and basically the spear shaker um, in Elizabethan England, the person who was actually associated with, um, I think it is Minerva, uh, do, do tell us if we're wrong, was Edward de Vere. You know, he was the spear shaker. Uh, Joe's just running a check on that. It's going to be Palace Athena now, isn't it? I bet I'm wrong. It's just um, like the Joe it, Rogan podcast. Um, yeah, it's actually all of the above. Oh, oh I was right? Yeah. I, was right. I doubted myself. So there you go. And she was associated with, you know, invisibility uh, and subterfuge and, uh, you know, hidden identity and, and all the rest of it. And, um, you know, De Vere himself was likened to her uh, and to Apollo. And if you look at the Apollo symbolism in the... the um, the Druchet portrait in the first folio, um, again, that points, if it points anywhere, to somebody associated with Apollo. And uh, I don't think Shaxper ever was, although, you know, tell me if I'm wrong. I, I, he was post, posthumously, 
Uh, yeah, been I mean, associated 16... with everyone after he died. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, right. Um, I just we've got seven minutes before morning break here. I mean, this this is cutting edge recording this. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, point ten on my list of thirty one. Uh, Edward de Vere's voracious reading habits. This is this is what we know of Edward de Vere and books. Uh, Shaxper famously didn't leave any books in his will, by the way. So we don't know that he could read or owned books. His, but, his daughter certainly could not read. <clears throat> Absolutely. Yeah, I think she signed her name with an X, didn't mm. she, or a squiggle when she married. Um, Edward de Vere's voracious reading habit, quoting Air, became evident during a convalescent stay of several months at Windsor when aged 19. Letters written to Robert Cecil towards the end of his life indicate that he suffered from bouts of depression, a condition then referred to as melancholia, which is Greek for black bile. Um, and I think that the two points there are interesting because you've got a moody, broody... Um, aristocrat hiding away in a large castle, reading lots of books, many of which he has privately bound and commissioned for him, and that led to Roger Stripmatter's analysis of De Vere's Bible, his uh, thesis. Uh, I don't know, does that sound like anybody we, we know from literary fiction? A moody, broody, melancholic who reads a lot? Hmm. What is the matter, my lord? Yeah. Words, words, words. <laughs> it sounds an awful lot like that Hamlet guy. And, and, and also, let's not forget, um, De Vere's father died when he was 12, uh, in 1562, his mother remarried very, very quickly and married a man um, whom De Vere did not like. Now, I can't remember his name because I never can. Um, it might be something that pops up later. Um, but I do know, if I'm right, that his coat of arms had a peacock on it. And there's a very yes. weird reference to a peacock or a peacock or a padjock or something in Hamlet. Um, and, and just parenthetically, one of the most interesting things that I experienced as a teacher with my kind of Oxfordian mindset, is reading the Arden edition of Hamlet, looking at a reference to William Cecil, for example, and reading that the footnotes produced by the Stratfordian Orthodox community and the, the, the mental gymnastics and contortions they have to go through to explain why they think a Midlands malt merchant, a plebeian from, uh, you know, Stratford, you know, would be allowed to take liberties satirising a major figure in Elizabeth's court and, and not, not be killed for treason. Yeah, Elizabeth not known for being forgiving of that specific kind of thing, was she? She was, she was, she, she was a bit of a tense lady. Somewhat vindictive. You know, yeah, she might actually remember if you'd done this. Um, Charles Tyrrell, by the way, was the name of it. Charles Tyrrell, there it is. And I think on his coat of arms there was a peacock. And again, you know, you could say, well, hey-ho, there are peacock references in other places in world literature. And yeah, quite right, no doubt. Maybe a lot in Chaucer, but... The fact is that we, we, we have to be looking at the Shakespearean canon for this to be a relevant point, and you know, I, think, I think it really is interesting, that. It's layers upon layers, isn't it? It's building more and more yeah. in, the, in the same argument. Yeah, I mean, once you see this tabulated, or as I've got it here, you know, <laughs> four pieces of uh, you know, printed-out stuff with 31 bullet points and, and whatnot, when you see a numbered list or you see all this thing uh, put to you in one go, it, it, it becomes very convincing. Now, of course you have to be intellectually honest and think, well, is this a weird form of confirmation bias? Mm. Surely I should now go and read James Shapiro's Contested Will. Now I did, uh -huh. and there'll be more on that another time. Um, by the way, if you are a Stratfordian, um, or whatever you want to refer to yourself as, if you, if you believe the, the orthodox view, which you're more than adult to do, um, mm. please do send us an equivalent list. Absolutely. We will go through that list. I would love to see the equivalent list of reasons yeah. why the yeah. man from Stratford is the man who wrote these plays. And sorry to, to be so demanding, but I'd like 31 points to match my 31. 31 minimum. 
I mean, minimum. I mean, please, compose more. Um, but you see, that's why I expected when I read the Shapiro. I mean, I, I, I respect and admire Professor Shapiro, Stanley Wells, Gary Taylor, all the big names. Uh, Jonathan Bates, you know. I mean, I know they've published on, on Shakespeare, devoted their life to him, and they love the works as much as I do. There's no vindictiveness, there's no outcome from me. Um, but I, I read the James Shapiro thinking, right, this is it. Um, it, it apparently, it's a hammer blow for Oxfordianism. Well, okay. I got about 100 pages in and thought, well, wh- where is the hammer? When will it fall? Quite a lot of blow. Well, quite a lot of blow, though. Sorry, James. Uh, Jimbo. Um, right, so I'll move on to my next fact, and we should probably cap it there and do some call-outs. Yeah, good chat. Um, so here's another kind of biblio fact tied to the previous point about De Vere's fondness for reading. Kel surprise, uh, given that he was Oxford and Cambridge educated, was also a trained lawyer, uh, you know, was a member of Elizabeth's court, blah, blah, blah. Um, this is quoting uh, Air again, page 63. Uh, De Vere's Geneva Bible was bound in crimson velvet with the Oxford heraldic symbols. Uh, that Bible's now in the Folger Library in Washington, D.C. And as Roger Stripmatter um, illustrated in his PhD thesis, it contains 1,064 annotations and marked verses in De Vere's hand, 295 of which have direct links to biblical references in, in the Shakespeare plays. Don't forget, no books are mentioned in Shakespeare's will. Certainly not. Lamentably, um, a household Bible, which I would have expected. Um, so, I think we've covered some territory there. Definitely. I could go on. I've reached point 11 you of certainly 31. will go on in the next episode. <laughs> yep. Yeah, there'll be more ranting from Taylor. Um, but, yeah, should we do some shout-outs and Yeah, stuff? go on. I think you've got a few. I don't have many. <clears throat> I don't have any this week. Um, well, I've, I've picked up lots of uh, followers and, and fellow travellers on, on Twitter as AQ and on. Um, Francis Stewart III, hello, good day to you, sir. Jeff Falzoni, uh, or Falzone. It's a bit like Calzoni, Calzone. <laughs> I didn't want to go there, but I don't want to get it wrong. Don't call the man a folded pizza. Please don't hate me if, I, if that's wrong. But Jeff, you're brilliant. Thank you. Lots of really, you know, brilliant affirmative comments. And we don't necessarily agree, I think. But I think you, you, you're just happy to support, as I say, a fellow traveller. Uh, Daniel at Alacrities. I think I've shouted out to you before, but uh, if anyone's going to like any of my wacky posts, at the minute I'm trying to reproduce an essay I wrote comparing Matt, uh, Macbeth and Hamlet in the medium of probably a million tweets mm-hmm. and the guy who always likes it first isn't Joe no it's, okay it's so guy. chuck a comment in there it, absolutely and he, and he has recently and it's very nice um, but it's, it's a chap called Daniel who's absolutely brilliant um, shout out to Maud May I think you've landed a, a very interesting acting role uh, recently we did approach you to act in uh, Doctoring Faustus one of my crazy plays uh, that didn't work out but um, you know, well done you. Yeah, and congratulations. I, yeah, following you on Twitter, it's really exciting. Uh, Bastian Conrad. Now, this chap's, a, I think, a German academic. He, he posts lots of videos to YouTube, mm. and he's very active on Twitter. Uh, I doubt he'll listen to this, but do check him out. Um, I've tweeted to him um, on several occasions, never had a response. Uh, but if you do listen, I was just going to implore you to uh, tell me about your book. I think there's a book on, on Marlowe in, in the offing. Um, I'd be really interested to um, find out about that. Um, there is a guy on Twitter called Marlovian, hello. And then Julian Ung and Peter Hodges, who produce another podcast called Hidden in Plain Sight, which is very good. You should check them out. That's a podcast on Marlowe, you know, what happened after 1593 in Deptford and all that. Uh, Aunt Lord Dean, Always. You, you, sir, are a god among men, and I know you will hear this. Although um, you put the bins out on a different night to me. So it's really, but but really don't worry about that, because that's a Favisham thing. <laughs> All right, in Sandwich, it's Monday night, and, uh, I, yes, I regale my wife with, uh, 
you know, tales of our interactions, some of which are relevant to uh, you know, the AQ. <laughs> Most are not. Um, and then a, a lady whose who's Twitter handle, whatever we're calling it, is uh, Secret Worker of an Age. Uh, forgive me, I've gone and forgotten your first name, and that's, that's incredibly rude because we do message one another. Uh, um, and and th- there is a, a, a book, um, a, a PDF, a downloadable uh, text by the same name, produced by that, uh, that person, that very, very lovely lady. And I'm slowly reading it, and it goes into a great deal of uh, discussion about Freemasonry, symbolism, and for her as a Baconian, the way that points back to Sir Francis. Oh, fantastic. I think I'll shut up. Um, Yeah, brilliant stuff. Um, Thank you, as always, to our audience for interacting with us and and for staying with us for um, this this period where we've been missing from your feed. Um, Hiatus. Yeah, the hiatus, as it were. The interregnum. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's not an interrectum. Regnum, we're both here. Interrectum? So. Did you hear that, good people? Interrectum. What is um, this? <laughs> I hardly knew him. Um, he's, he's two tables away. But, I think I'm safe. But um, <laughs> interrectum. We've uh, yeah. Thank you very much for interacting with us. Um, we're we're going to try and be. <laughs> we're going to try to be uh, more regular with our interrectum. Um, and yes. uh, we uh, thank you once again. Please do email us. Much to do about the AQ at gmail.com You've got a finger up, what do you want to say? <laughs> Just an annoying postscript. A shout-out to the sixth-form students at our school, which we don't yes. know, uh, but you've been listening in and tuning in, your loyal followers and uh, supporters. Thank you. Yeah, thank you um, to all of you. Hello, and um, you need to work on blending your AO3 better in your essays. Uh, have a good one, everybody, and um, if the seas don't rise, and etc., we'll be back next week. <laughs>